0: Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach Jordana Michelle. And if you're not already with the woman of your dreams and you're ready to finally find her so you can be best friends who learn and grow together and share dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. Have you ever performed a striptease or a lap dance? Did you know that performing a striptease in the mirror can be a transformative experience? You see, women are taught to use the mirror as a tool of criticism. We're taught to look at our reflection and compare ourselves to impossible standards and criticize ourselves for not measuring up. But seduction is ancient. Human females have been attracting mates throughout history. And when we perform a striptease, and allow our bodies to move in the ancient, seductive ways that human females have been moving throughout time, it awakens a knowing within us of our own inherent attractiveness and power. These are powers that we can access at any time. That's why learning burlesque or any kind of striptease or exotic dance helps women feel so much more confident and beautiful in our own skin. And in this episode of Women Wanting Women, I interview former burlesque performer Mary Lofgren. During the episode, Mary shares a ton of valuable tips for mastering confidence and accessing our own seductive powers. So listen close and take good notes, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Mary Lofgren. Hello, Mary. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so glad that the amazing Liana Silver connected us. I asked her to recommend me some fierce women And you were one of the first people she named. So welcome and thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah. So I have so many questions to ask you, but let's start with
1: who was Kitty Cavalier? Great question. So, um, So my name is Mary Lofgren. That's my birth name. And for several years, I went by the name Kitty Cavalier, which was my burlesque persona. Fun fact, how I came upon that name was by playing the name game where, you know, when you ask like, what was your first pet in the street you grew up on and your, or your first pet and and your first car. And my ex-husband was sitting at the table at the time and his first pet was named Kitty and his first car was Cavalier. So that was how I got the name Kitty Cavalier and um i had lived the majority of my life completely shut down around my sensuality and really traumatized state around my body and burlesque was one of the tools it was like a somatic form of therapy For healing that disconnection between myself and my body. And so I became a burlesque performer. I taught classes in burlesque as a tool for empowerment and helping other women heal that disconnection with their bodies. And so Kitty Cavalier was kind of like the starting point for this body of work of using sensuality and seduction as a spiritual practice and a tool for healing.
0: That's so great. And I love how you discovered the name or came up with it. That's such a fun story. (laughs) So how did you discover burlesque in the first place though? Like where were you? How'd that even happen?
1: Um, Well, I was a student at Mama Gina's, which you and I have in common. And, um, you know, so for those listening who don't know what Mama Gina's is, it's called the School of Womanly Arts. And it's a school that teaches women about pleasure and sensuality. And so I had had this really big transformation where I went from like not being able to wear short sleeves in the summertime because I felt so ashamed of my body to really feeling so proud and so sexy and so feminine. And, um, so at our talent show at the time, Mama Gina would close her programs with a student talent show. And I thought, what better way to like celebrate and embody that transformation than, with burlesque. And so I started taking private lessons with Jo Weldon, who's the founder of the New York School of Burlesque. And she's amazing. And she taught me how to fan dance and twirl tassels. And the rest is history. I want to get back
0: to it all, but I'm curious what it was it that, um, I mean, it's, it is really fun in the School of Womanly Arts and Mama Gina's School of Womanly Arts, seeing women come out of their shells and showing up, just the way that they end up showing up it's it's so extraordinary but what was it that allowed you to feel so proud and sexy and feminine for the first time like what did she open up for you what was it it's
1: a good question let me think about that for a moment i think you know the experience of seeing other women be proud in their bodies like i remember at my intro night <laughs> this one woman who was in her like fifties at the time, like her late fifties, I believe. Um, you know, she was, she got on stage and she was talking about how she got the resources to take the program because the program was like $5,000. And, you know, at the time I was sitting in the audience, like, how will I ever come up with that money? And here was this woman, you know, who was in a very, Feminine, curvaceous body in her fifties and she asked Regina if she could share the ritual that she used to manifest the money and she <laughs> took she asked if anyone in the audience had a hundred dollar bill, which someone did and so she just took off her top in the middle of this room of like two hundred women and just started caressing her breasts with this hundred dollar bill and that was definitely the moment that made me want to sign up for her program because it's so wild. The things that happen
0: at Mama (laughs) Gina's school of womanly arts, like that's not even, that doesn't, that like, doesn't even (laughs) stand. That's how it always is there. It's such an outrageously fun place, but keep going. I love that story so much.
1: Yeah. So, so I just thought like, wow, like if I can have a tablespoon of what that woman possesses, like that level of confidence and ownership, inside a body that does not look like any of the bodies that I've ever seen looking proud and full of ownership, um, then this would be worth it. And it was, it really is so empowering being in that room full of all of these
0: women, just being so accepting of themselves and their bodies and celebration of all that they are. It really is. I can see what you mean by just being in the room helped to transfer that because it's Mm -hmm. an extraordinary experience and so much fun too.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gave me a lot of permission.
0: So then had... So it was your... You were going to participate in a talent show and you decided to do a burlesque dance to celebrate mm-hmm. your graduation. And yeah. then was was that before you had seen burlesque or was that... or And then you went to the burlesque lessons? Like, how did you get the idea? And then how did you... When was your first time seeing burlesque?
1: Um, I remember going to a show like a couple months before. And, you know, it was it was a huge I mean just even going to the show was a huge step a huge advancement um in my willingness to expose myself to that level of sensual potency. You know, like I think prior to that experience and that awakening, I would never have intentionally put myself in that kind of environment. Um so because I had that experience, like what I saw that night really changed my life because again, here were these women who had like the only experience I had with seeing women's bodies portrayed as beautiful was the media. And here on the burlesque stage were these women's bodies who looked exactly like the women's bodies that I would see at the gym, which were always like scuttling from the shower to the lockers, like being covered up kind of thing. Like I'd always seen normal bodies in the context of hiding. And here on the burlesque stage were these, you know, quote unquote, normal bodies in the context of, um, flamboyant, uh, exaltation where not only was cellulite not hidden, it was glittered, you know, and, you know, breasts were saggy. Breasts were pert. Breasts were double A size. Breasts were G size. And there was no discrimination between what was a good breast. Like it was a good breast cause they were breasts, you know, and, So that really like cellularly changed my understanding of what a seductive woman actually is, you know, rather than this outside in approach of looking a certain way or acting a certain way or having this like skill set that was a total mystery to me. It was like seduction and this feminine power of attraction was more intrinsic and more inherent and far more accessible to a woman like myself.
0: Now, is that part of the principles of burlesque? Like how does it I I think I have to admit that I'm not sure I've ever necessarily been to a burlesque show. I've seen certain performances, but I'm not so sure that I necessarily even know how to define it or what distinguishes it. So is that is that is that one of the defining principles? Um, tease, Or, um, the exaltation of the female body in whatever form you find it.
1: Um, I would say that it's, you know, definitely becoming more and more like that. Like there's this, you know, movement called neo burlesque, which is like what you would see if you go to a burlesque club, like in New York city or on the Lower East Side. And, um, you'll typically see a variety of bodies, a variety of, um, ages, um, which is a bit different than what you might see if you went to like Las Vegas kind of thing.
0: Okay. So now I have like 10 million questions about Neo burlesque, but I have a feeling I probably would be better off just YouTubing it for the next 10 hours and making everyone else <laughs> follow my curiosity. But I don't, I do want to like go back to what you were just talking about seduction and feminine power of attraction. So mm-hmm. what can you tell me about what you
1: know about that? Good question. Well, so as Kitty, what's interesting is like as Kitty, I would teach these burlesque classes and I was teaching burlesque and I was teaching this dance technique. But what was happening is that these women would come out really transformed because my experience with most dance classes is that especially ones in front of a mirror is like, you know, it's like women Typically, are t- u- taught to use the mirror as a tool of criticism. And in these classes, here we were performing this act of stripping our clothes off and seeing through the eyes of beauty, and through the eyes of worship, and through the eyes of diversity and inclusion, and diversity being a point, uh, being an asset rather than, um, you know, non rather than conf- being conforming as your liability. And so what would happen for women is that they would have this experience of seeing themselves in the mirror through a totally different perspective. And they would go out into the world and that would affect how they communicated, how they, you know, were able to access their power of flirtation, how they were able to walk down the street. Like it's, it was a a cellular change that was happening in the body and even beyond the body in the spirit, like this unification of body and spirit that is a really, really attractive power.
0: But somehow you were able to teach how women can be looking in the mirror and instead of using it as a tool of criticism, they'd be using it or they'd be, looking through the eyes of beauty and worship. So how did you get them to make that shift in, in your classes? How did you teach them that?
1: You know, it's kind of hard to articulate. Like there's, there wasn't like, it, you know, there was certainly a series of exercises that we would do in each class. But I, th- I think that there is an inherent inclusivity to the power of feminine erotic movement. But again, because feminine eroticism is portrayed in such a specific way by the media, a lot of women think like, oh, I'm too fat for that, or I'm too old for that, or any of these other lists of reasons why that's not accessible for them. But then once you start moving your body in this very ancient way, whether it's peeling off a glove or bumping and grinding your hips, it awakens this knowing within you of your own attractiveness and your own power and you start to see beyond the limitations of aesthetic and um, like the rules about feminine beauty and you start to dive into the truth about feminine beauty which is that it's an energy rather than a symmetrical aesthetic.
0: Feminine beauty is an energy, not a symmetrical aesthetic. I love that. I'm curious, do you think, because I do remember the experience of being in Mama Gina's School of Womanly Arts and seeing women moving their body in this ancient way, not the bodies that we've been taught by the media are perfect, but however old, whatever size, all of them in every way and there is so much you do you do see the beauty beyond any particular form it's just so special but i wonder is it required that that in order to awaken this within oneself we need to be surrounded by other women doing the same so that you get that because one who might look in the mirror with the as look at the mirror as a tool of criticism when observing oneself when observing others, there's, there's not that criticism anymore. And then you can relax the criticism around yourself as well.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Do you think it's required? Is this something that's my, I guess what I'm asking is can someone just figure this out for themselves in their room alone? Or does it require that we be in a room with other women witnessing each other, accepting each other, finding each other perfect in our imperfections? Do
1: you think the witnessing is required? I think it helps, (laughs) you know, like it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, and I also remember when I was 21, I moved to New York and I moved from this really tiny town of a thousand people in upstate New York. And I was like living in New York city for the first time. And I had access to cable for the first time. And I remember I would watch this show on HBO called real sex. And I was just dumbfounded that people could be this open and expressive about their sexuality. And I think I think it was on Real Sex that I I saw something about this video. I don't exactly remember, but I I heard about a VHS called The Art of Exotic Dancing for Everyday Women, and I went to a video store, which you did at that time, and I bought it and I put it in an unmarked bag and brought it home on the subway because I was like terribly ashamed. You know, I was so young, and got it home and put it in the thing, and. One of the exercises was to be in a full length mirror and to make eye contact with yourself and to walk from where you were standing to your reflection and then walk backwards and not break eye contact the whole time. And I started while music was playing. And you didn't have to walk in any sort of way. You didn't have to like sashay your hips or, you know, cross your ankles in front. like there was no like technique about it. It was just an energetic, you know, experience of being in the presence of your own beauty and seeing myself like my experience of it was to see myself the way that other people may, may or most likely saw me, you know, because I was looking at my eyes. I wasn't looking at my body. When people see us, they don't really look at our bodies. They look at our eyes. They look at our energy. That's beautiful. Yeah. And so I, I remember saying to a friend at that time, I feel like I'm having like great sex and I'm not even doing anything. You know, like all I'm doing is walking towards myself in the mirror and I could just feel this erotic potency rising in me that I had never experienced before. I mean, I was 21 years old. The only experience I had with the erotic was like fumbling, awkward sexual experiences with boys in the dark, you know, and it was my first taste of the potential that was out there for again, experiencing my beauty as an intrinsic experience rather than extrinsic.
0: So then what advice do you have for everybody who wants to, to choose more intrinsic beauty for oneself?
1: Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Well, you know, that is one suggestion I would have is to, when you look at yourself in the mirror, like to use the mirror as a tool of seeing yourself, like seeing the essence of your beauty, rather than the sum of its parts. And one of the things that I find really important in doing that is, you know, if you look at yourself in like, the Port Authority bathroom mirror, it might not happen. (laughs) You know, there's a a quality of ritual that is required to access the erotic. Just like, if your partner, you know, I remember at, at the time I was married, to a guy and people would be like, what's it like to be married to Kitty Cavalier, you know? And I, I just remember like practicing my burlesque routine in the middle of winter wearing like black socks with like, you know, my burlesque costume on to keep my, my body, my feet warm. And like, you know, I just like, like I could not have been less the picture of sensuality and eroticism. And he was like, well, you know, it has its ups and downs because, like, you know, he would get the the side of me that 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 people would see on stage, but he would also see this like polar opposite side, and it was such a great example to me of just the ritual of sensuality. That like when I look at myself in the mirror, just like if my partner like has morning breath and you know is like I'm not going to be able to really access my full sensual radiance if that ritual isn't there and so when looking at oneself in the mirror candlelight when looking at oneself in the mirror with the intention of seeing the essence of your beauty candlelight is kind of important you know beautiful music is kind of important and it's not about altering the, in the appearance of yourself. It's more about altering the experience of your energy so that you can fully receive what you see through the sense of your eyes. It's kind of like the difference between eating a strawberry when you're standing at the fridge ravenously hungry versus eating a strawberry at the end of a meal, which you allow it to slowly dissolve on your tongue and you take in the full vibrance of its flavor, you know, there's a quality of receptivity that is only accessible to us through ritual. So if you want to experience that, something that I would highly recommend is adding an element of ritual and sensuality to the experience.
0: I love that. Now I'm in the mood for strawberries too. (laughs) So you used the word erotic a bunch of times and Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what it means to you. When you, Mm -hmm. when you use it in those ways.
1: So to me, to me, the erotic is anytime I feel the presence of God in my body. And so that could be the traditional understanding of the erotic, which tends to center around being with another person. But for me, it's more the everyday experience of being in my senses. And so that ritual of candlelight at night, savoring that first touch of foam against my lips. When I order a cappuccino journaling in the morning while listening to my favorite operatic aria, like those are all moments where I feel this divine energy where I connect to it through the power of my senses. And to me, that is the presence of the erotic. It's like where my my full circuitry is lit up with aliveness.
0: Yeah. I was about to, before you said aliveness, that was the word that was coming to mind from what you were describing, just totally lit up. And does it always have to be pleasurable experience?
1: Not for me. You know, to me, the erotic can be any experience of feeling to me, the opposite of the erotic would be numbness. There's plenty of times where I feel depressed or sad or, uh, just kind of this hanging melancholy. And usually what's happening in that moment is not that anything is happening in that, in that moment. It's more a resistance to feeling my feelings and One of my personal spiritual and embodiment practices is to just set a timer for 10 minutes and not meditate or not try to change the way I feel, but to just feel what I feel. And usually when I do that, there is not usually, there is always some sort of relief at the end. Um, It's kind of like that expression If you don't fully feel the shadow, you can't fully embody the light. And so there is definitely an eroticism and a sensational aspect to feeling those more shadow elements for me.
0: Yeah. And then stopping and pausing and just letting yourself feel it. So are you standing up? Are you moving around? You said it's not a meditation.
1: Usually I'm just sitting. If I feel called to move, like, for me, moving something through my body, like playing music and moving around, that feels like a transformative technique. And and I do that too. Meditation is also, again, a way to like kind of transform what I'm feeling. Um, but when I sit, to, when I set the timer, I'm usually just kind of sitting and feeling as much as I can.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have so many more questions, but I I think we didn't finish talking about seduction. Can we jump back to that? You talked about intrinsic beauty and erotic potency, but I want to hear more about seduction.
1: Sure. What would you like to know? You used to teach that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a body of work and I wrote a book called Sacred Seduction, which was all about using the principles of seduction as a lifestyle and as a way to expand your spiritual practice rather than just kind of a game between lovers or a game of manipulation. Yeah, because when
0: you think about seduction, you often think about it in the context of the bedroom. So how does then? how is it a lifestyle then?
1: So seduction is happening all around us all the time. You know, like you learned about my work. You researched my work a little bit. You felt a resonance and a desire. So in essence, you could say that my work seduced you. To reach out to me (laughs) and your work, your podcast, when you reached out to me, I researched your podcast and your work seduced me right back, you know? So uh, seduction is essentially is attraction meeting action Mm. and sacred seduction to just kind of take that a level deeper. Sacred seduction is attraction from a place of authenticity. So our traditional understanding of seduction is using the erotic to manipulate an outcome. Whereas sacred seduction is the act of letting go of the outcome, being in the desire and following the, the truth of that desire, one moment, one sensation at a time, and then allowing the outcome to be what it is. So it's this co-creation between you and spirit, or you and the divine, or you and your desire.
0: So, as we're weaving in the element of letting go of outcome, it makes sense that that, of course, makes everything more spiritual. So, what what else then do you teach about it?
1: Um, well, I don't really teach it that much anymore, right? Because I transitioned out of Kitty Cavalier. But essentially, everything that we've been talking about of this feminine system of attraction and seduction, seduction as being kind of the love story of your life. Like that's the essence of sacred seduction where it transcends this idea that to be a seductive woman or a seductive person, you have to have these traditional elements of like a string of love affairs and a robust lingerie collection and all these ideas. And again, takes your seductive power out of the extrinsic and makes it more of an intrinsic experience of deep surrender, uh, moment after moment after moment.
0: And loving the story of your life. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So then why did you stop being Kitty Cavalier?
1: So after about five or six years of teaching retreats and writing about seduction and, you know, really focusing and honing and niching in on this topic, I felt like it was limiting me and, and also showing up as this Kitty persona. I kind of retired my burlesque career after I moved out of New York. And so I wasn't performing burlesque anymore. And Kitty was a, Kitty was born out of that burlesque experience. And I just felt like being inside that persona was limiting what I could teach and what I could offer. Like it was just really one dimension of myself and what I had to offer. So earlier this year in February, I completely rebranded, reorganized my business, let go of that persona. And since then, I've just been showing up as myself, as Mary.
0: That's so exciting. And now that you can be your full self, what are some things that you can bring into your teaching that maybe were, that you felt restricted and unable to bring in as Kitty?
1: I think that for me on a, like, kind of a personal level, it's just that I get to show up, like, as Kitty, again, like, Kitty was a persona, so, like, Kitty wore pinup dresses and red lipstick, and, and I love that part of myself, but again, it's, like, it's just one dimension of who I am, and it was, it became, um, not authentic anymore, and the essence of my work was attraction through authenticity, so, Now that I don't have that pressure of how I have to show up, it's like the teaching and the resources have expanded beyond just this experience of seduction to more of a kind of holistic, total experience of using sensuality as a tool for healing and for embodiment and for helping a person recover themselves from the cycle of dissociating and um, leaving the body. Um, It's really become just kind of a love letter to, whereas Kitty Cavalier in Sacred Seduction was a love letter to this energy of seduction, the work now, which is called the School of Sensual Living, is really more of a love letter to your body.
0: A love letter to your body and a a love story of your life. These are great things. Mm -hmm. So then how do we produce a love letter to our bodies?
1: It's interesting. You know, whenever I do like a, an interview or a podcast like this, there's always a point where someone asks like for a tool or like, how do we do it? You know? And the, the answer is like, there's hundreds of ways that I could, could tell a person to do it, but I feel like what's more important is, or, or what I would do if I had a person in front of me is rather than telling them what they should do with their bodies is like asking them, how does it feel in your body right now? You know, I feel like there's just so much information out there where the, I remember when I used to read 17 magazine and, you know, do this comparison of myself based on my, how I looked and how I felt and things like that. It's like now that our real life magazine or now that our, our magazine idols are real people on social media, there's all this comparison and especially around self care and embodiment and things like that. And so I would say like a great place to start in terms of being in your body is to allow yourself to just get really quiet and really settled. And rather than telling your body what it needs or telling your body what it should do, to just take a moment to really deeply listen because I often say the things that I teach are new information for a lot of people, but it's information that your body already naturally knows. And it's really just about creating a supportive container to remember that inherent knowing. Yeah.
0: And then really stopping and asking the question, how does it feel in my body right now? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information there.
1: Mm hmm. And a great to to just also give like a more tangible answer to that question. A great place to start is with what is my body doing right now? What would my body be saying if it could speak? And so some great places to look are your posture, your facial expression, and your gesture. You know, so I teach a little mini course on body language And helping to interpret, like helping to master confidence, not just by telling your body what to do, but first by listening to what your body is saying and what your body is expressing already. And so a great place to start in terms of that listening is to like look at your current posture or tap into your current posture and just be in the question of if my posture could say something right now, what would it be saying? And before you even go to correct it, which is what I'm doing, of course,
0: as <laughs> I sit here straighting on my back.
1: Yeah. yeah, That's the natural tendency, again, is to go to what we think we know we should be doing, right? It's like taking that moment to listen and to pause and to honor what's already there and then slowly introducing a different shape and noticing when your body's in that position. How does it feel? What is it saying? How do you feel inside that shape? So it's like opening up this line of communication between yourself and your body rather than it being a one-sided conversation.
0: I love this exercise, noticing our body, noticing what is my body doing and And trying to think from its perspective, what would it be saying? What is the posture that we're holding right now saying? What is our facial expression saying? What would our body be saying through that if it could speak? What is our body already expressing through these physical manifestations that we're already showing? And how do we feel inside that shape?
1: Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information there. And often that information gets missed due to A, just lack of awareness, which is really common and normal, Um, and, but also that immediate tendency towards correction, you know, and that's very much a habit of the culture we live in. It's like, you notice your body's doing something, you know, like we all know what quote unquote good posture is. You notice you start to notice your body language and the immediate impulse is to whip your body into shape kind of thing. But there's a lot of information in what the body naturally does and how the body naturally speaks. For example you know, you may find in certain relationships, it's like, why does my eyebrow always feel like it's knitted together and like, you know, or like I often call the, I'm I'm also an esthetician. I've been an esthetician, a facialist for over 20 years. So I know a lot about the face and the facial mus- musculature and the frontalis muscle, which is the muscle that pulls the eyebrows back. You know, if you notice that your frontalis muscle, this eyebrow muscle is constantly up It's like, why am I, why are, what's the people pleasing that might be going on in this relationship? And how can I use my body language to ease that muscle back into place once I've received the information and notice the way that that subtle change in the chemistry of my body actually changes the way I feel inside and the way I show up in this relationship. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense.
0: And I, I'm seeing two sides. One is an inherent information that our body might just tell us if we ask ourselves the question. But then on a more meta level, just given the fact that we're creatures, like you know, 99% chimpanzee, and if the chimpanzee raises its eyebrows in a certain way, it means a certain thing. Or if it holds its cheek in a certain way, it might mean a different thing. So there mm-hmm. are certain instinctive movements that we as creatures naturally exhibit. And if we start to notice that, there can be information hidden within there. Um, but then just within our own, our own knowing without having to study what it is that chimpanzees do with their faces, we might also come up with a lot of information that way. So there's kind of two, two sides to it.
1: That's right. That's right. A great example of that is if you notice a person's gestures, like when just the other night I was talking to someone and, um, you know, they kept touching their throat touching their throat, touching their chest. And that's a really common gesture when you almost want to hide your words. When you're uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that all the time. It just, it's when, when you're feeling vulnerable and exposed, your body naturally creates this action to, you know, kind of close up your throat and suck those words back in or make them smaller. Equally, if you've ever been in a, Conversation where a person's using really big body language, um, or really expressive body language. You'll see this in a lot of like public speak, like sales oriented public speaking, where you're trying to get a person really excited. It's like that would be the opposite of like the first example is someone who's trying to make themselves smaller so that they won't be as vulnerable. The second example, again, not always, but often is a person trying to make themselves bigger so that they won't be vulnerable, you know? And by studying the behavior and the language, like the literal language of your body, you can begin to understand on a deeper level how, how all this came about for me, just to kind of insert a personal story, is I, as a result of trauma, have a lifelong habit of dissociating where I can be talking to a person and I can look completely there and I am completely somewhere else. And this is so common for so many of us. And I wanted to start to use my body as a tool to actually stay there because I found that I was having these conversations where I would be in these relationships. And after These interactions, I would feel like an emptiness that I just couldn't put my finger on because I was there and I was trying to be present, but it's like I just couldn't. And so this study of body language and sensuality, again, not just as pleasure for pleasure's sake, but as a tool to break that cycle of leaving over and over again so that you can show up authentically in your relationships um, is to me something I could study and talk about for the next hundred years.
0: (laughs) So then what you'd be doing instead of dissociating where you'd physically be with a person, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, not necessarily there at all, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but by noticing your posture, your facial expression, and your own gestures, by paying attention to what your body's physically doing, that was a way to associate back in.
1: That's right. And then
0: how did that change your relationships?
1: completely and utterly, you know, where I like by studying that, that science and that very, very subtle communication. It's like, I notice that if I'm, if I can feel this sensation, like I'm, I'm very attuned to sensation and, and all of this is, um, in part the study of somatic therapy, you know, it's like understanding how the body speaks not just in body language, but in sensation and, and in various ways. And so the way it, I mean, everything changed about my relationships and, and not just my relationships, but my sense of confidence, my sense of intentionality around my life. You know, it was like, I was actually able to be in my life rather than constantly chasing the next high of intrigue and excitement and shining new. I was able to pour my attention, not just in what I could get, but in like how deeply I could savor what I had. And that revolutionized not just um, like my present moment awareness and my sense of mindfulness, but like the richness of my intimate connections and the way that I felt, um, I'm having a hard time putting it into words. Well, what I like about what
0: you just said is, is how by associating, it's not just that it became a mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. It's not just that you were having present moment awareness of the now, mm-hmm. but that actually you went one step further and to to really relish in it and the yumminess mm-hmm. of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Like you were able
0: to actually extract a pleasurable enjoyment.
1: Yeah, it's like a, a practice in receiving if I could kind of even distill it even further, it's rather than just being there, it's a practice of receiving and being nourished by the experience. Whereas before it was almost like every experience would be like empty calories. And that's so common for everyone, I I believe, in large part to technology addiction. Because there's just always something to take you out of your body. There's always a ding of a notification or an opportunity to scroll and I feel really passionate about, I mean, technology is not going away. We know this, nor do we really want it to. And, you know, it's like there's this idea that we're more connected than ever, yet everyone I know feels more isolated than they've ever been. And so more than ever, these embodiment techniques are so important because day in and day out, there's just constant opportunities to leave your body in ways that 10 or 15 years ago weren't, weren't there. So how often
0: then would you say in your life are you walking around really deep in this relishing and enjoyment of the experience compared to, I mean, how often, are you, is this, are you in it all the time? And then that, that's, or how?
1: I would say it, it really varies. Like, have you ever heard of the four stages of learning?
0: Like, like, so, like conscious incompetency yeah. and then that yeah. one?
1: Where it's like it starts with unconscious, comp- unconscious incompetence where you're like, I'm numb and I don't know why, you know. And then you realize you're in a cycle of dissociation and so you go into conscious incompetence where you realize what the problem is. You then start practicing and so you go into a state of conscious competence where you realize like, oh, okay, I'm making some improvements and then you go into a state of unconscious competence where you don't even have to think about it and you can actually teach others. So I would say I'm constantly vacillating between each of those stages because this is really a lifelong learning and a lifelong practice and there is definitely no mastery when it comes to present moment awareness and being in your body. There's just practice over and over and over again. So I would say that I have, you know, specific practices that I do to help heighten and increase my body awareness. And then my day-to-day practice, it just really depends on the day. And it really depends too on like before we had this call, it's like I took a moment to just kind of center myself and meditate and connect with spirit and say some prayers for the call, which I don't do all the time. You know, it's just kind of, When my spiritual practice is strong, I remember to do those things and I have better experiences. And then I become a human again and I fail and (laughs) it's the dance, you know, it's what we're all, all doing all the time.
0: Totally. I remember when I was first learning mindfulness practices and becoming more whole in that sense. For me, it was just sort of getting awareness over the fact that I had anxiety in my body. And so I used to do these practices where I'd either feel my pulse to get more into my body or where, where I'd feel the anxiety. If I felt it in my stomach, for example, I would just try and breathe deeper into it Mm -hmm. to sort of ground it more. And I think I still do those, Mm -hmm. but I don't remind myself to have to do them. I just catch myself doing it
1: sometimes. So. Mm -hmm. You know how I experience I have the same experience where for years and years and years, traditional mindfulness, I would do it but I wasn't really getting what I wanted or needed from it. And one of the things there's this great book called meditation secrets for women by Camille Maureen. And she talks about how traditional mindfulness practices were created by men for men and not just any men, but men who were living a monastic life where they had pledged poverty, chastity, and obedience, (laughs) you know? So it's like, it makes sense that for, A person who's living in a female body or a female gender identity who associates and identifies more with those feminine traits, those traditional, more masculine, more linear techniques, while extremely helpful and important, may not totally scratch you where you itch and where you long for something more. And that's that's really what the school of sensual living is, is understanding mindfulness from this more feminine approach.
0: And I really resonate with what you're talking about with longing for something more. I know some of the times when I'm with my family or the people who I love most and I just want, I just want the moment to be more. I don't want it to pass Mm -hmm. and just want it deep in there. You know, I just want it to, you know, that, that feeling of just wanting it to just relish in it. And Mm -hmm. it's cool that you have a practice that really allows you to take it up a bunch of notches every time. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And I would say too, like, I, I know that in my mindfulness practice, I would often get really frustrated because I did want to take it, uh, take it up a notch. And my experience of it is like, it's almost like taking it more down and in, like I was always searching for like the next technique or what would, what would get me there. And I think for me, what, where a real turning point was, and it sounds like this was true for you, for you too, is again, realizing like, it is, it's not what we do, it's how we do it. You know, it's like how deeply I can um, savor and be, and, and the senses, you know, mindfulness. So I used to get really like, uh, around mindfulness and yoga and the whole thing because it just seemed so kind of linear and just dry and I just couldn't get into it. And to, to just kind of close with the story, Uh, So I went to Mama Gina's, you know, and I worked there for a period of time. And I really, I mean, I made my whole life about studying pleasure and I left the school to start my own business. And in that process, I acquired $40,000 of credit card debt. And I also went through a very painful divorce at that time. And so I was compulsive spending. And again, it was like, I just kept chasing this comet tail of pleasure through my outside experiences and that extremely humbling experience of finding myself deep in debt and not being able to, and, and also getting sober in that time and not being able to use my impulses to generate pleasure anymore required me to go down and in and find this resource of pleasure inside of myself that couldn't be given by an outside experience or taken away. And to me, that is the, the feminine experience of mindfulness if that makes sense. It does.
0: So what else can you tell people about what you're excited about, about the work you're doing, about where women can find you?
1: Yeah. So um, you can find me on schoolofsensualliving.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at hellomarylofgren. And I would say what I feel really excited about right now is even though I have online programs, I also am expanding and building my in-person experiences because you know sensuality is a, a personal practice but it's really sometimes challenging to teach online the full spectrum of the experience so i'm currently planning a couple of retreats for next year and some uh personal retreat days like i do retreats where a client and i will fly into a city and i create a personal retreat experience for them so i'm really excited about that but if you'd like to learn about the work and join any of my programs or check out my offerings. You can just go to schoolofsensualliving.com. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for being here. This has been a great talk. I'm really grateful for your time and for your wisdom.
1: Thank you. Thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So nice meeting you, Mary. You too. And now I would love to hear from you. We covered a whole lot of things in this episode, but I'm curious, what of the many things we spoke about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share dreams together and have adventures together and have passionate intimacy together, then there are free resources that can help you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of these things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to finding your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.